The year was 1505, so 500 plus years ago. July 2nd was the day, and there was a young man walking through the forests in Germany on his way home from his college break to visit his parents. Now, this is the forest that is famous for dwarves and trolls and goblins and werewolves. It's called the Black Forest. This is the place where all kinds of stories of scariness have happened. But our story today doesn't deal with any of that. It deals with the thunderstorm. An incredible, incredible thunderstorm as this man is making his way from his college town back home on one of his breaks. And it's a dramatic lightning display and thunder all over the place. And he's got his cape and hood up over him. And he's just trying to stay dry. And in a flash, there was lightning relatively close to where he was standing, and the heat dispersed from that lightning created a a gust of wind that literally knocked him over, and of course, the thunder was loud. It scared him dramatically. And he yells out, being a good Catholic, Saint Anna, save me. I'll become a monk. And he did. He stopped being a student of law, sold his books, disappointed his parents who had hoped that he would fund the family as a lawyer. He was an incredible scholar. And he joins an uh, an Augustinian monastery and he begins to study religion and philosophy and languages. And he had been a good Catholic up to this point, but he writes in his journals that in this period of time, Jesus stopped being his savior and started being his jailer or the hangman waiting for him to die. It was a horrible experience for him. His name is Martin Luther, and I have a picture of him, I believe, right up here on the screen. Gentlemen, there he is. This is our buddy Martin Luther. There are obviously no photographs available at the time. And this is how his story really begins. He was born in 1485 to young German family. They were an up and coming. If there was a middle class, they were an up and coming family. And mom was a hard worker. Dad owned some property and was uh, invested in copper mines. And so they were an up and coming family. And mom and dad had decided for Luther that he literally would fund the family, their retirement, so to speak, that all the family's investment would be put into this man. So when he turned away from being a lawyer to becoming a monk, it was a horrible time for the family. He was relatively disowned, if you will, all but for his brother Joseph turned their backs on him. That's what was going on in his personal life. But what was going on in the world around him was that the Catholic Church at that time, which is very different than the Catholic Church today, when we talk about the Catholic Church in history, we have to be careful to not impose what was going on historically and make us believe erroneously that the things that were going on on historically are the things that are being dealt with today. But at the time, the Catholic Church was experiencing some internal conflict. There was a lot of power struggle going on. Uh, the, The Pope situation had largely become a popularity contest or a contest of who could buy the most votes. At this particular time, Pope Leo X is sitting on the throne of Rome, and he has an incredible building project going on. 
he's rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica. And if you've ever been to Rome, you can see the fruit of his labors. But it's an incredibly expensive project. And so he writes letters to all his various bishops all over Europe. And he says, you have to contribute. And they do a bit, but not enough. So he writes them another letter. You better contribute or I'm going to take your bishop title away from you. Now they're interested. So one particular group of bishops get together and they hire a young man by the name of Johann Tetzel to go about raising money in their sphere of influence for the rebuilding and for the expansion of St. Peter's Basilica. And the year now is about 1516, 1517. And he goes about telling people that they should contribute to Rome's coffers to build St. Peter's Basilica. Now, at this point, our guy, Martin Luther, whose picture you saw, he has completed his studies as a monk. He didn't finish his studies as a lawyer, but he goes on, he gets a master's degree, a doctorate degree in theology. And while he's doing that, his experience as a monk is informing him, and he's getting further and further away from his monk tradition and more and more interested in the study of the scriptures directly. Less and less history of the church, more and more study of the scriptures. And so he learns the ancient languages, the New Testament, Greek, Old Testament, Hebrew, and Aramaic. He learns Latin, and he really, really dives deep into the study of Scripture. And as he does this, he's having a growing discontent in his own heart. He had already had some family rejection. He doesn't feel at home in his tradition, his chosen career. And so there's some internal stuff going on inside of his life. There's some external stuff he's looking at, and he's not very happy. And at this particular time, about 1516 and 1517, while Johann Tetzel is walking around all the area in which Martin Luther is living, trying to raise money for the rebuilding and the expansion of St. Peter's Basilica, Martin Luther at this point finds himself as the resident theologian of a local church. Not the pastor, but the scholar. This church is, is called the Castle Church in a little city called Wittenberg or Wittenberg. And one day, after having internal anguish about his own situation and what's going on around him, Martin Luther sits down and he begins to write out a document about his frustrations with what he sees going on around him. Particularly, he zones in on Tetzel. And it wasn't so much that Tetzel was raising money because Martin Luther knew churches had to do that. It was the particular way that Tetzel was trying to raise money. Tetzel told people this. Our theology, Tetzel said, says this, that our faith is only valid if our faith has action. Faith alone isn't valid. Faith plus action can actually bring you to salvation. This has always been the historic teaching of the Catholic Church. Faith plus action can bring salvation. So Tetzel took that basic doctrine that everybody could kind of in a common sense way nod their head at and go, yeah, that makes sense to us. And here's what he said. He said, so one of the ways you can put your faith in action is you can give money to the church. In fact, you can give money to the church this way. You can give money in such a way that if you have a lost loved one that has passed, 
And you're not really sure if they were good enough to get into heaven. Because remember, it's faith and good actions get you to heaven. If you weren't really sure they were good enough to get them to heaven, here's what you could do. If you'll give enough money, God will apply your good action to their lives and help them get to heaven quickly. Out of the prison of purgatory. And so a little slogan developed around Tetzel's teachings. Before the coin in the coffer rings, cha-ching, before the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And the money started rolling in. Poor people, rich people giving mass amounts of money to free their loved ones who weren't always good acting from the confines of purgatory into heaven. Now, none of the truth, theocracy of the Catholic Church liked what Tetzel was doing. There was agreement there. But nobody wanted to stop the flow of cash. And this bothered Martin Luther, who had a pastor's heart for his local congregation. And he believed that people were being taken advantage of. That their ignorance about the theology of the church, their ignorance about about the scriptures itself... And their strong desires to please people and love people, that was being leveraged in a way that was anything other than God honoring and people helping. And his pastor's heart began to grow dramatically. And it began to look like frustration and anger. And being a scholar, he set out to write a scholarly attack on what was really going on. And so one day, on October 31, we're about to celebrate that. He takes his 95 statements and he nails them, written statements, onto the door of the castle church. Now, this wasn't an odd practice. In fact, this was a a normal kind of thing for people to do. That was where announcements were made. You know, there's a rummage sale down the street. So-and-so's having a garage sale, that sort of thing. There's a puppy, you know, lost and found. So so he just, you know, nails his thing up there where all the other stuff is happening. Except his document stands out because of his stature, because of the office that he held, because it was incredibly well-written and articulated, and because it stood in stark contrast to what was a deep motivating force in that community. Let's let our good works and our faith combine and benefit other people in the way that Tetzel is telling us. This is how Martin Luther's story begins, and it takes us to the second week now of our Rooted Message series, where we're turning from looking at the Catholic Church and the history that is there and how we can benefit from it, and it turns us now to the Lutheran movement. In this entire message series called Rooted, here's what we're remembering to focus upon. Number one is that the church that Jesus started, it actually belongs to Jesus. It doesn't belong to anybody. Four Corners Church does not belong to me. When a few months ago, two churches were kind of coming together to be one better together church, we were having a Q&A time, and one little young man, about seven years old, sitting right over here in the Q&A time, he raised up his hand, and he, me and a couple of staff were sitting on the stage, he said, who runs this church? Who owns it? That's a great question. And so I said to him, well, it's the church that belongs to Jesus. Jesus is the owner of this place. And we get that from the book of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Here's what that verse tells us. And I tell you, Jesus speaking, that you're Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. 
Peter had just declared, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yep, that right there, that right there will be the foundation of the church. And the gates of hell, which illustrated the idea of death, death itself will not stop it. You're Peter, that confession, even when you die, this church is going to advance. When everybody in the sound of my voice is gone, the church will remain. And by the way, it's still true. When all of us are gone, the church of Jesus Christ will still stand. 2,000 years and alive and kicking because it's not ours, it's his. And from time to time, the Lord brings to his church an incredible movement of change, fresh winds of his spirit blowing over his people and it awakens in them the full work of God. That's exactly what was about to happen here. And let me just be clear about the history here because we're talking a lot about a moment. But Martin Luther doesn't just usher in change that becomes what we call the Protestant church, Catholic or Protestant. Because of Martin Luther, there's a thing called the Counter-Reformation, where the Catholic church digs down over the next hundred years and reinvestigates its practice so that the Catholic church today looks a whole lot more Protestant than it ever looked before Martin Luther. Martin Luther actually brought revival to the whole church. And sweeping changes were made. Sweeping changes. So the church belongs to Jesus. And number two, here's our operating principle. We want to understand these movements. We want to honor them. We want to learn from them. Our motto here is is that we want to be a student and not a critic. Because being a student of what God has done historically is incredibly helpful to us. It helps us understand where we fit, where we've come from. Knowing where we've come from helps us determine where we're going. Being deeply rooted in the faith of Jesus, the, the church that Jesus is building has given some people incredible momentum to do powerful things. Here's one that you may not have heard of. A gentleman by the name of Soren Kierkegaard. There's his picture right there. Doesn't he look awesome? Very handsome gentleman there. Very young looking uh, there. When he gets older, he actually gets a bit of a hunchback. He walks over with a cane and kids used to ridicule him. They didn't know that at the time in Denmark, he was one of the greatest minds. He was also a student of Martin Luther a few hundred years later. Loved Luther's writing. He's a Lutheran, the movement that Luther started. He is also the father of modern existentialism. A lot of you in college, a lot of your kids now, they'll study philosophy and they'll jump into existentialism and they'll land on this idea that our experience helps define meaning. Well, the first guy in the modern era to discuss that concept is this guy right here. And he was a deep man of faith. You've ever heard about the idea of taking a leap of faith? This guy right here. He wrote and he said, there comes a moment when all the teaching and all the training of life and all the stuff people tell you, tells you, comes to a moment for you. And it matters. It's there. It informs you. But every person will have to step out for themselves and experience stepping into nothingness. This is part of his philosophy. And when, he, when you do, he says, here's what happens. For the people that are with Christ... When you do, there is an unseen hand when you step into nothingness, an unseen hand that will direct you and guide you. So he says, trust the hand. Trust the hand. It will guide your experience. It brings meaning to your experience. Another guy who was deeply impacted by Luther's thinking is a gentleman right here by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in Nazi Germany who stands up and rails against Hitler and his regime, and he dies for it. 
He loses his life. He read Luther. He read Luther's writings about the book of Romans, how the just are going to live by faith. How that God doesn't want people to just be silent while evil is happening around them. He read Luther's words that for people to be silent when evil is happening is evil itself. Bonhoeffer stood up and he loses his life for it because he believed that the work of Jesus required a certain boldness and courage to stand up. These are two incredibly powerful men who were impacted by Luther. There's a more modern philosopher. Maybe you'll recognize his picture, David Hasselhoff. He's a Lutheran. Here's what he said. I think that without sushi, there would be no David Hasselhoff because sushi is like the perfect way of describing the inside of David Hasselhoff. He's like protein, clean and easy. That's how I feel about myself. This is not a guy to emulate, but he's a Lutheran, all right? This is the the whole point of illustrating this is you can't always measure a tradition by its people, all right? You can't always measure a a tradition by its people. The truth is, is there are a lot of us that are goofy in all these various traditions that we've discussed. There are going to be moments of shame and glory in all of the traditions. But at the core, Jesus is building his church. And we are recipients of that incredible heritage. Now, there was a song that began to develop out of the the Lutheran movement. When Martin Luther nails those those items, those 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg church. Something dramatic has happened. He is, at this point, he has been motivated by the problems in the church. He's been motivated by his own journey of internal peace and being cast out. He's being motivated by the Pope's plan to finance St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So he brings reforms. In October 31, he posts these 95 theses. Their actual title of the 95 theses are this the disputation of Martin Luther on the power and efficacy of indulgences. That's the actual title. And in fact, I have a picture of the door, I believe. Right there it is. Now the door is still there, but it's been ironclad. Um, And they've put over the, uh, the door in metal sheets all the 95 things in German that Luther wrote. It's pretty impressive, actually. You can still visit the exact place where a dramatic shift in Western history is going to happen. That's the history part of what we're talking about. But there is a theological, biblical, and spiritual side to this story that we need to unpack for just a moment. Because the words of Luther still ring true. As he recaptured, he didn't so much discover, he recaptured the energy and the momentum of the early church where Jesus first started it, that some 1,500 years later had kind of, in some regard, lost its way. And we're going to take a few moments and look at Luther's own words and recapture for ourselves today. For some of you, it will be the first time. For others, this will be a revisiting. Recapture what one bold man was able to declare for ourselves, and to see what God might speak through it. There are three major movements that began with Luther. Three major ideas put into common language. Let's talk about that for just a second. When Luther is doing his work, Luther decides rather than speak in Latin or Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, any of these languages he had great command over, he would actually speak into German the common language of the people. And when he would write, he would write in German for people. Now, 
Something else has happened right about the time he's doing his work. I believe it's God's providence. God had, had in, uh, I believe, given insight to a, a man by the name of Gutenberg to invent a thing called the printing press. And so Luther had at his disposal technology that had not been available yet. Luther could take his writings and they could be duplicated dramatically fast. Pre-Gutenberg, all done by hand. Post-Gutenberg, you can turn out several hundred copies of a letter or perhaps 95 theses overnight, several hundred copies. And Luther decided he would write in the common language. And one of his favorite, in fact, his most favorite thing to talk about was a theological concept that I hope you'll understand by the end of our day. The idea of justification by faith. Justification by faith. Remember that the, the Catholic Church has and still says that faith plus action equals salvation. Luther investigated that and said, we have to be very careful with that doctrine. Because there's some good things about it. But technically speaking, it's not fully accurate. And not only had the Catholic Church previous and now teach that, in Luther's time, the emphasis wasn't on the faith at all. It was all on the action. Illustrated by Tetzel's highly motivating speech, give some money, make some eternal difference. Do good to people, and if you're good enough, God will bring you into heaven. If you're bad, you don't, or you get stuck in purgatory. Luther said, we need to slow down and look at this thing. So here was basically Luther's point, and it rocked the world. And I want to be clear with you, it still rocks the world. Here it is, first sentence. Good people do not go to heaven. And that was shocking That's all the common people understood. There were theologians in Rome discussing that that wasn't technically precise, although there was something they wanted to keep alive about it. But the average person living in Luther's day, if you said, how do you get to heaven? Here's what they would say. Good people go to heaven. So you want to get to heaven? Be good. Luther said, not true. That's not true. He's not saying don't be good. He's not saying you shouldn't be better. In fact, your spouse is kind of hoping you'll be a little bit better. All right? Luther would agree, you probably should be. Luther's point is not that goodness is bad or that goodness isn't honored. It's a simple mechanical thing that he's trying to destroy. Goodness does not bring heaven to people. Good people do not go to heaven. Luther would say here, forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people do. This has always been the message of the gospel. In some regard, the Catholic Church is still a champion of that idea. But Luther brings incredible light, shines a spotlight on this doctrine and brings clarity that nobody had brought, maybe since the Apostle Paul wrote about it. So from Luther's own journals, let's look at at a few words he says. Faith is not one some people think it is. Their human dream is a delusion. Faith is not enough, they say. You must do good works. You must be pious to be saved. They think that when you hear the gospel, you start working, creating by your own strength a thankful heart which says, I believe. That's what they think true faith is. But because this is a human idea, a dream, the heart never learns anything from it. Instead, faith is God's work in us 
that changes us and gives us new birth from God. It changes our hearts, our spirits, our thoughts, and all our powers. It brings the Holy Spirit with it. Yes, it is a living, creative, active, and powerful thing, this faith. Luther is trying to drill down on a basic biblical idea found primarily in the New Testament, but hints of it in the Old, found dramatically in some of the words of Jesus and in the book of Romans. That the way you have a relationship with God is not based on anything you do. It's simply based on his goodness to you. And you put your faith in the goodness, in the character of God. You don't put your faith in your ability to be good. In fact, if you could be good enough, exactly how good enough is good enough? It's one of the things Luther wrestled with. How good is good enough? If it's about being good, do you simply have to be better than everybody else? Do you have to be in the top 25%? Does God grade on a curve? Or is there some other matter in which God is defining you and the relationship with you through? Luther says it's clear. And he draws primarily from this passage in Romans chapter 3. But now... A righteousness from God, that word righteousness means a right connection from God apart from the law, so apart from doing good or bad, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. All the Old Testament, the law and books of Moses, the prophets, all the other writing, all the Old Testament testifies to this righteousness from God. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference for all have sinned. You know what we have all in common? We've all sinned. And we all fall short of what God requires from us. So if it's about being good, good luck with that, is what Luther would say. If you're really trying to have a relationship with God by being good, good luck. Because the truth is we all fall short. And are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. Through faith in his blood. God did this to demonstrate his justice. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Until Jesus, all the bad stuff people did had not been dealt with. But at the cross, God counted the sacrifice of Jesus as canceling all of that debt. He did this. God did this to demonstrate his justice at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is the passage Luther wrestled with. And then he comes to this final sentence in Rome, Paul does, and he says, Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle is our boasting excluded? On that of observing the law? No, because if you can be good enough, you can brag about it. But you can't brag about faith. No, because it's simply built on that of faith. And the phrase, the just shall live by faith, becomes the anthem of the Reformation. And it gets built into a a song that we still sing today about the strength of God to bring salvation. So I thought we'd go back to an ancient recording from the 1500s and let you hear Martin Luther's followers sing, but I couldn't find one. So I went back to the uh, 1980s. Take a look. A mighty fortress is our God. A 
bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he, Lord Salaf, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. So all over Europe, they would sing this song in their native tongues by familiar tunes that God can be depended upon, that the strength he brings is good enough that if we confide in our own strength, our striving would be losing. And then there's this great line, Lord Sabaoth, the idea that God is a saboteur and he destroys our notions. He takes captive our notions of what it takes. And instead of us pleading and striving, he gives us grace. And the cathedrals of Europe begin to sing about the greatness of God and the incredible freedom of grace that's offered because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Even today, if you read the Lutheran catechism, here's what it says. I believe that by my own reason or strength, I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him. But the Holy Spirit has called me through the gospel, enlightened me with his gifts, and sanctified and preserved me in the true faith. Even today, the Lutheran church affirms that Salvation is by faith, and we can't do it. It's not about being good, although goodness matters. There's a place for goodness and faith, but goodness and faith are not on equal footing. Faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. This principle becomes known, this principle of salvation in Christ alone becomes known as sola fide in Latin. Sola fide. Faith alone. Luther gives us this gift to the church. It's so radical that the Catholic church for 150 years sits in councils and says, let's drill down on what we really mean. And in some ways they, draw, they, they double down on their previous idea, but they make it clear that the kind of stuff that Tetzel was doing will never do again. But the Protestant Reformation has began and the authority shifts from the Pope of Rome to the Lord of heaven. And it shifts from being good enough to earn it by some standard that somebody gets to define to being the finished work of Jesus is good enough for all of us. And everything else, our striving would cause us to lose. This is justification by faith. It's one of the big three. We'll go through the next two much more quickly. The second gift that Luther gave the world was the Bible to the masses. In September 1522, Luther translated the New Testament from Greek to German. There had been Latin translations, but the average person couldn't read. 
So Luther didn't go to the Latin translation. He went all the way back to the original languages of Greek. And he sat down and he began to translate with his incredible command. And he had a group of scholars around him. And they would bring to him various pieces of translation. And he would word it in a way that would make sense to the average everyday reader. It took him 11 weeks. Only 11 weeks. The man was an incredible scholar. And they began to print it on the Gutenberg Press. And the cost of that New Testament alone was equivalent to one year's wages for the average person in Germany. One year. And it sold over 5,000 copies in the first two months. People hungered for the word of God. They wanted to read it. Up to this point, the Bibles had been chained to the desk, primarily so they wouldn't be stolen. But it became a, a metaphor that really church was the only place in which you could engage God. And Luther said, uh-uh. You can have the Bible in your own hands. It became a status symbol of sorts. But more than a status symbol, people read it. There were over 300 dialects of German before this. And because Luther printed in one particular dialect that could be read by most, German the, the language and the country becomes unified under one common way of writing and talking. Produces incredible strength for the German country, for the German people, for, for literally for, for centuries. But beyond that, Luther was compelled by a passage in the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3. Uh, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 and following. Here's what Paul writes to this young pastor Timothy and says. These words stirred Luther. He said, but as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you've heard it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. You can understand why Luther would like this passage, through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, Paul writes, all the Scripture is breathed by God and it's useful. Look at how it helps people. It, it's useful in teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man, the woman of God, the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Luther loved good works, but he just said faith had to be first. So we give them the word of God so they can understand the mind and heart of God. Faith in Christ alone. And the scriptures embraced by every believer of Jesus because they have an active relationship, not based on what they do, but based on faith. And so they, can, they consume the word of God to know the heart of this God who would bestow such an incredible gift upon them. And so Luther began to put the Bible in the hands of the average person. One of those Bibles makes its way, by the way, to England. And a gentleman by the name of William Tyndale says, I'll take Luther's Bible and my understanding of the Greek and Latin text. And he has all three of them in front of them. And he writes the first ever. Bible in English, which is read by a king with a certain amount of authority. We call him James. And he gets together with a group of scholars and says, we can do a little bit better. And that Bible, which has its foundation in Luther's works, changes the entire world. It's not an exaggeration. Luther believed that salvation through faith in Christ, the Bible in the hands of believers, and finally the third point, the rallying cry of the Reformation. By the way, the Authority and the sufficiency of scripture is called sola scriptura. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola scriptura, the scriptures alone is the source of authority and practice in the life of the believer. And number three, the priesthood of all believers. 
Everybody knew in Luther's day what a priest looked like, and they knew that really those are the people close to God. That's what they thought. But Luther is taking this high idea, and he's bringing it down right to where people live. And he called this idea the priesthood of all believers, not just those with regality, not just those with titles, not just those with education, but every single person who puts their faith and trust in Jesus can have direct access to God. Luther didn't make this up. He read it right from the pages of scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, and actually all through the New Testament. Peter writes these words to the church, come to him. A living stone, though rejected by mortals, yet chosen and precious in God's sight. And like living stones, let yourselves be built into a spiritual house. Believers in Jesus, your spiritual stones be built together as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter hearkens back to his ancient Hebrew days, the priest who would kill the lamb. In Luther's days, they they remembered the priest who would offer the communion to the congregation. But this passage, Luther's shining a light on saying, every single follower of Jesus can offer spiritual sacrifices. They can have direct access to God. In fact, here are some of the implications of the priesthood doctrine. You can have direct access to God. I don't know how you find yourself spiritually in this room today. But the teaching of scripture that Luther is highlighting here is that every single person can have access to God. You don't need a mediator. You already have one. His name is Jesus. So that every single person who is presented with the idea that Jesus is the son of God and has given his life and been resurrected from the tomb can have direct access to God, not because of what they did, but because of what Jesus did. And the reason you can do that Because God is powerful enough to make it happen. Number two, second implication of the priesthood doctrine is this, that you can make spiritual sacrifices of things like pray. You can pray whenever you want, not just when you come to church. You can give praise to God whenever you want. You can give thanksgiving to God. You can serve God. You can bring gifts of repentance and love whenever you feel like you're supposed to, whenever you want to, whenever you feel compelled to. Nobody has to free the way for you. It's already been paved. The road before you is already well lit and well marked. And nobody then has to prompt you as a follower of Jesus. You can be prompted by God through his word through his spirit, whenever you feel compelled and are open to it. This was revolutionary because it's not the way people thought. The church was a building. Luther's saying, no, we're priesthoods. In fact, we're the stones. The people are the church, not the building. Number three, that every single follower of Jesus can speak the truth of God in wise and powerful ways. Even the common man on the street, the lowly shepherd can speak the truth of God in wise and powerful ways, even more reason than to get them the word of God in ways that they can understand it. Number four, he said that all of us who are followers of Jesus are agents of reconciliation, leading other people to Christ and to each other. We're all agents. We're all ambassadors. All of us, can carry the gospel message to people because you're a priest, 
You may have thought of yourself that way, but you're a priest before God. And the, one of the biggest ones, number five, implication of the priesthood doctrine is this, that leaders in God's church are not distinguished by their social class, but by their willingness to serve by accepting the responsibility to promote the agenda of Christ alone, sola Christus, sola fide, sola scriptura, solas Christus. By accepting the responsibility to promote Christ alone, and then the congregation acknowledges a special gifting or, or an unction or an anointing on that person. Yeah, we see you, and we're going to help you. We're going to recognize what God's doing, and we're going to elevate you because you have a heart to serve, because you promote the agenda of Christ. It wasn't about degrees and scholarship. And so all the access to the work of God is pushed way down for every single person. If you were to ask Luther, what did he discover? He would say nothing. He said, I simply found what was laying dormant all along. So here's what brings me to you then. You have a religious tradition. I have a religious tradition. The idea of reformation is is that those dormant truths that maybe haven't been getting the attention that they deserve, those things that are at the base of our faith, maybe they need to come to the surface. So let me just kind of click through these real quick and you do a mental inventory. How are you thinking about these days your relationship with God? Is it truly something that flows out of the faith you put in him or are you trying to earn it? I'm a little nervous to talk about that because I know that for some of us, the whole reason we're actively engaged in the church is we think that's how God is happy with us. I kind of want you to think that. It helps me. It's just wrong. No. No. You have access to God because of the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. How are you doing though with justification by faith? Maybe this is the first time you've heard it. Let me tell you something. You explore the depths of a God who loved you freely, you will find freedom. It will produce in you a, a, a joy that if you can't earn it, but it's fully available to you, there's a joy and a thanksgiving, thanksgiving that can rise up in your soul. So if your life has been as Luther described his in the monastery, if Jesus had stopped being his savior and was more of his jailkeeper, then perhaps there needs to be a reformation in your thinking, in your mind and heart about the fact that God freely saved you, not based on anything you've done or going to do, not at all. How about that second tenet we talked about? The availability of the scriptures to every single person. This is not meant to put guilt on anybody. Luther would say, I don't give you the Bible so you can feel guilty for not reading it. I give you the Bible and and an available resource so that you can understand more freely, more deeply, more energetically, the mind and the heart of the God who saved you. You can know him more. You can discover his strength. He can become for you a mighty fortress, a bulwark or a rampart that never fails. People will fail you. I will disappoint you. But in the Bible, you'll discover a God that can be depended upon. How is your trust factor? And then the third thing, this idea of the priesthood of all believers. Are you practicing as if you believe that you have direct access to God? Not in a guilt-filled way. 
That's not what to, I'm not trying to give you a list of to-dos. But for those of you that are feeling stirred, one of the ways you can satisfy that stirring and give it feet is you can take advantage of the fact that you have access to God. You can make spiritual sacrifices. Just like the Old Testament priests used to do. Except ours looks like prayer and praise and thanksgiving and serving. You can speak the truth of God in wise and powerful ways to yourself and to others in community. In your small group. If you have one, if you don't, getting together with people who are speaking the truth of God in ways that are personal and deep and real elevates this idea that you have an active relationship with God. It's not some stale practice that we go through. And for some of you in this room, the truth is, is God has tapped you on the shoulder and said, I'm calling you to lead, not sit in the shadows. I'm calling you to lead. And you've let life circumstance and other agendas get in the way. But deep down, you know you have a call of God to lead. You know that there is in you a willingness to serve. But maybe it's been repressed. Today is the day to bring that up. You're willing to accept the responsibility of promoting the agenda of Christ and not your own. Maybe even in the life of this church. Perhaps in some other sphere. And you do that, what we as a church want to do is rally around that and say, run, we're here, we'll give you tools, we'll walk beside you, we'll pick you up. But if God has called you to lead, as Paul wrote to the Romans, then lead with all diligence. Run. This is the heritage of the Reformation, but this is ultimately just the word of God. This is the gift of the Lutherans to us. With all that said, would you do this? Would you grab out your connect card? And let's actually take a step or two. I talked about justification through faith. <laughs> the way we, the language we use around here sounds similar. It says, next step A right there on your card today, I'm making Jesus my Savior and Lord. And you certainly don't have to be good enough. You don't have to wait till you get cleaned up. But because Jesus has already finished the work, you can say, Jesus, forgive my sin. That's the biblical word for Savior. And lead my life. That's the biblical word, Lord. Be my forgiver and my leader. If you want to do that, here's what we ask you to do, just a way of marking the moment. Take that pen, check next step A, and put it in the offering bucket when it comes by at the end of the service, and we'll communicate with you. I'm going to pray in a minute, and you can use your words. Borrow mine and look to God and say, God, I want to put my faith and trust in you. Not my way, nobody else's way, not some stale program of religion. I want an active faith with you. Or how about next step B today? Today I'm choosing to be baptized. This is just where we go public with our faith. It doesn't save us. It's just like a marriage ring. A marriage ring indicates something. It doesn't make you married. It just indicates that you have been. So if you have checked next step A as an adult but haven't been baptized, you can check next step B and we'll answer your questions about it or sign you up for the next one. Here's next step C. I, I gotta tell you, I just felt really stirred in the preparation of my notes for this point. And even if it's just one person, all right? Here's what it says. I'd like to chat with the 4C leader about my sense that God is calling me to step up as a leader in ministry. We don't even know what that looks like. That may be all you know. 
But if you'd like to chat with one of our leaders about that, we want to come alongside you and fan that gift and call of God into flame in your life and see what God might do with that. How about next step, D? I'll attend a rooted small group. On your seats with this little card, on the back of them are six different groups that you can go to starting this week to talk about this message and others. And all the contact information is right there. There's an email address. You can literally leave today and email that person and say, when are you meeting? Where are you meeting? I want to come. And keep doing one until you find a, one that fits your schedule. All right? So you can check the box. We'll send you this information again electronically if you forget the card. And you'll be able to just go right now this week and start talking about these things. Making sure that they actually get deep roots in your life and they aren't just being a stirring in the moment. Here's next step, E. It says, I'll attend the, the class or the lecture on church history on Monday, November 16th. That's right there on the card as well. If you check that, we'll send you a reminder. I'm gonna do 90 minutes on major movements of the Christian church and what they can speak to us today. We're just gonna go deeper with what we've been talking about. Let's pray about these things right now. Heavenly Father, I wanna thank you that you've raised up men like Luther, like uh, Bonhoeffer, like... Kierkegaard, like us in this room. You raise up people. God, I want to thank you for the free gift of salvation that's available to us through Jesus Christ. And God, I join right now with those that are declaring, Jesus, save me. Wash away my sins. I trust you completely. Cling only to you, not to my good works. Lord, I lift up those men and women in the room right now that are feeling a tug on their heart to step into ministry. To truly lead, lead themselves, lead others, but be a part of what you're doing in this world in ways they have not yet done or perhaps return to a sweet time in their life with you where they gave aggressively to your work through their lives. God, I pray that the lessons of the Reformation would never be lost on us that it really is through faith alone, through Jesus alone, through the scriptures alone. Seal your work upon us. We pray it in the name of Jesus, the strong and holy son of God. Amen. Amen.